It's like to make you work out. When you start, you got to walk up the stairs. <sighs> I thought that was funny. Come on. <laughs> the last time I was here in 2016, um, we had just been teaching a whole uh, a series on uh, hearing God, the art of hearing God, John Paul Jackson's course. Some, some of you may be familiar with a man named John Paul Jackson. Maybe some of you all explain who he is in a second, so you kind of know a little bit about who I am since it's been so long. Um, and I think one of the first things I did was um, I asked for volunteers to come forward, and we we're going to enter into prophetic ministry and uh, people that have been attending the course. And so I shocked some of those people, and almost I think I may have voluntold a couple of them. And so I was considering doing that again just to freak some people out. Get them come. Okay, you're going to come up here and prophesy over people, but I, maybe I'll not throw that on you right now. Um, that's always fun to do to put people in uncomfortable situations. How many like being put in uncomfortable situations? Yeah, amen. There we go. One of so you can come up now, and we'll have a microphone for you. <laughs> What's the thing you're worst at? We'll make you sing or dance, something like that. Um, my my name is Joshua Hofford. I'm I uh, am originally actually American from California, and I've been in Canada for well since 2007. Uh, so that's 12 years now. Um, and so I I like to say I'm Canadian enough to apologize for being American. Yeah. So. <laughs> And, uh, and, and I'm California enough not to care about it. Um, so my wife and I, we, we came out to the Maritimes, uh, mainly in Nova Scotia, at the invitation of a mutual friend of uh, Bruce and I, John Rodham, who was here in January. And um, John invited us out in 2016 to, to speak at a number of different churches and, and just to get a feel for the Maritimes. And so uh, we just fell in love with Nova Scotia and spent some time here with Bruce, spent some time in Halifax uh, with some pastors there, and then down in um, uh, Yarmouth with Larry Pinnell, uh, another mutual friend. And um, there, we just could never shake the idea of the Maritimes. And one of those places where we left... And my wife and I were, ta were talking like, well, we could really see ourselves living here. We really love it here. And, you know, that's, that's, they, John invited us in July and August, so that's not really fair. <laughs> so, because July and August is like perfect <laughs> here. He didn't tell us about January and February and March and April and December and November. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, through the course of life and following God and listening to his voice and, and the different 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 circumstances you go through, um, I won't go into detail about that story today. We moved to Prince Edward Island at the end of 2017, uh, so now we are officially Maritimers, I guess. Well, we've, told, we've been told we have we're, we our uh, third child was born, Cassian. He's nine months old, nine or ten months old now. I think just over ten months, and uh, so now we're official because we had a child in the Maritimes. So we've been told that that you know. Yes, that makes that makes that makes something. Um, so we, yeah, we moved out in 2017. I I was the director of Streams Canada, the Canadian branch of John Paul Jackson's ministry. Uh, John Paul Jackson was a prophetic voice, a spiritual father. Uh, had had been um, one of those one of those that was used uh, incredibly of God 
from the really the mid to late 80s up until 2015 when he passed away and and had nearly a um, sterling track record um, which almost is like shouldn't be a claim to fame today but it seems like it is a claim to fame that he lasted and there wasn't significant controversy in his ministry and out, you know, outside of people not believing God speaks and things like that happening, but in terms of his personal character and his personal integrity. So those are things that in, it, when you look at men and women that have lasted and fought the fight, it's not that they had a great gift that inspires you. It's the fact that they lasted that inspires you, that they lived a life of character and integrity, that they lived a life of love. And by the way, character and integrity is summed up in the fruit of the Spirit. Someone lives a life of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, uh, meekness, and self-control. That that they live that life, and that's the thing that inspires you. And and so I had the privilege of running the Canadian branch of his ministry uh, for five, for six, six years. And then through, after he passed away through a numerous course of events, um, we ended up winding down the Canadian branch, and so that was around the time that we decided to move out here. So we've recently launched Wind Ministries, and uh, that's what we're doing now. And so, you've, like Bruce said, there's some books out there that you can take a look at um, that I've written, booklets, really, uh, to help you engage the life of Christ. I, I feel like my what what my passion to do is to equip people to experience God, and and that's just what I thrive for. Is that, is that if someone hears me, they would catch a vision of wanting to encounter the presence of Christ. Because that's what all of life is about. That's really what uh, Revelation 4.11 says, you were created to bring pleasure to the heart of the Father. That's your purpose. Your purpose in life is to bring him pleasure. And in fulfilling that purpose, you find ultimate fulfillment. Because you fulfilled your purpose in bringing him pleasure. And so when, when, one of the things that, um, that we often get wrong when it comes to asking the question, God, what am I to do in my life? Um, that question paralyzes most of us. I know it's paralyzed me in my life. What am I to do in life? That's, that's almost the wrong question to ask. Is, the question is more so, God, who am I to become in my life? Who, when you look at me, who do you see that I am? What, were, what was the thought you had about me when you uttered my name? When you breathed me in, let there be this one, let there be this one. What was the thought you had about me? It's not so much, what am I to accomplish? If we put so much emphasis on what we accomplish to grant us identity and a sense of peace and fulfillment, rather than being who we are. And when we hang our identity based on what we do, when what we do fails, we go into miserable depression because no, no one can, can recognize us anymore. But when we hang our identity on who he is and what he says about us, that never changes. And that can never fail. So the most important thing that you will ever do in your life is hear his voice. That's the most important thing. Because in hearing his voice, he defines you. In hearing his voice, he tells you who you are and who he is. That's what you find throughout scripture, by the way, is when he speaks individually, and he speaks to nations in the same way, but when he speaks individually, you'll see it time and time and time and time again. He speaks to you about who you are and who he is. Even the great example of that is Jesus and the baptism. At his baptism, Jesus was fully man and fully God, but as a man, he heard his father say, you are my beloved child, in you I'm well pleased. That was a defining moment in the human life of Jesus. We need those moments in our lives. Hearing his voice, personally for us and then corporately as we're called 
everyone to gather together at, and encourage each other day after day as long as it's still called today. Well, did you wake up and it was still today? Yeah, exactly. You're still called to encourage one another. And so that's still there. That's, that hasn't changed. You're called to encourage one another. And that means you're called to build one another up, to speak lovingly to one another. And that's part, that's part of community is, is encouraging one another. That's not the only part, but that's part of community is encouraging one another and speaking those words. Okay, I was going to talk about something. That wasn't it, but we're getting there. <laughs> I have, um, some of you may remember when I was here last time, Bruce and I were reminiscing about this, that my daughter crawled up onto the stage and sat next to him. They became best friends. And, uh, and so I have, my Savannah is now five, and so she has more attitude than ever. And she is five, and she's six in May, so she's basically six now. Um, that's what she tells everybody. So I've got three children and a wonderful wife, and uh, they loved being here last time. So part of being here was convincing us to move. So well done. You guys did a good job. <laughs> um, here's a question for you. How many of you woke up this morning and thought, or woke up some morning this week and thought, um, man, there's certain things I need or want in life? How many of you thought that? Oh, man, you guys are really fulfilled. Very good. There's things I need or want in life. And I know I, I wake up and I think, I, you know, you think about those kind of those existential crises we go through also. Is am I going to have enough money to support my family? Am I going to have enough energy to commit to this work? Am I going to have, is my job going to last? Um, are my relationships going to fail me? Um, all those kind of things. Is my car going to, is my car going to drive me from Summerside PEI to New Glasgow, Nova Scotia? Those, those, those daily questions we have. Uh, about the things that we want. And I, I was meditating um, not that long ago on Psalm 23. Meditating is a good thing when it comes to Scripture, by the way. Um, it's a word that's been co-opted by the, the culture of the world, but it's a word that's strongly biblical. Meditating on Scripture. I was meditating on Psalm 23, and I realized, I read the first verse, and it said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the first question that popped in my mind when I read that, how many have read that verse a million times? Heard that verse a million times? Yes. The first thing that popped into my head when I read that was, why do I have so many wants? And I realized that it, David was making a declaration over his life. David made a declaration over his life when he wrote that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have so many wants. And the re you know the reason I have wants is because I lack trust. I have wants because I lack trust. I have wants because I lack trust. For instance, if God called me to be here this morning, my car is going to get there. That's what Jesus said to the disciples in the boat. Well, you're worried that we're not going to get to the side? I'm here with you. I said we're going to go there. Well, paraphrasing, of course. If I lack trust, I have wants. But when I trust, a, sh a sheep trusts the shepherd and has no wants as a result. Because the sheep perfectly trust that the shepherd will provide in any given circumstance what they need. And so the wants I have, those moments of insecurity, those moments where I lack trust, actually show me the place that God's convicting me of his goodness. 
And when I recognize that, I can begin to throw my care upon him. And I make the declaration, no, I have this want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a declaration. It's essentially the same thing that Paul said in the New Testament. I've learned to be content in all things. It's the same statement, really. Because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So David says that 1,500 years before Paul, but Paul can say it the same way David can say it. Because God, God exemplified or, or put the example out of himself as the same thing. See, all of Scripture, Scripture when you boil it down to its basic essence is this. Simply put, okay, it's much more mysterious and mystical than this, but simply put, for, for sake of this morning, Scripture is your blueprint for encountering his presence. That's what it is. When you, boil it, when you boil it all the way down, the, the Bible is full of stories about how men and women encountered the presence of God. And he still encounters us and longs to encounter us in that way today. It's never stopped. You can go through story after story after story after story. The reason why Paul can say the same thing that David said 1,500 years before is because God still encountered his people in the same way. And he still encounters his people the same way today. How many of you have a story where God has provided something for you? I mean, he still encounters us in the same way today. I remember two weeks before we decided to move to the Maritimes, my wife and I were going, how are we going to afford this? It's not cheap to move across the country. And I remember every day that another thing would come through with God providing for us that I'd still question it. God convinces us time after time after time after time that he is good and he is faithful. The problem isn't his pursuit. The problem is our heart. The problem isn't him. It's not his inability. It's the fact that we put ourselves away from Psalm 5.2 says this, that by your, five, not 5.2, five 5.7. Five five good, good thing I caught that one. 5.7. Um, Psalm 5.7 says, David saying, I will come into your house because of the multitude of your mercy. I will come into your house because... You know that term mercy is the term uh, has said in the Old Testament. It's translated in the King James, the Old King James, as loving kindness. If you read, some of you might be familiar with the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation translates that word loving kindness as um, tenderheartedness. I will come into the house because of the loving, tenderhearted God. And we, we constantly default back to this place where we think God is judging us, God's out to get us, God's out to punish us, that he's withholding all these things. But it says right here, come into my house because I'm so loving, I've invited you in. We remove ourselves from that place and then God deals with our faulty belief structure. It's not him changing, it's our hearts that need to change. Job 33 says God speaks in one way or another, yet man does not perceive it. See, it's not about God speaking. It's about our inability to perceive it. And so he continues to come. He's relentless in his pursuit of you. He's relentless. So this is, we, think, we think this. We think that 99% of the effort is me striving and struggling after God. And God's like, okay, now I'll accept you because you tried so hard. The, this is really, okay, I'm going to demonstrate to you the amount of effort it takes for the human heart to turn to God, okay? You guys ready? Wow, that was really quiet. <laughs> this is the amount of effort it takes. That's it. You do 1% of the effort. 
That's like point zero 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 one percent. The effort is him pursuing you. Your your response is simply turning to him. So in in uh, I was listening to John Wimber recently. Some of you are familiar with that name, John Wimber. He started he was pretty much the catalyst for the Vineyard movement of churches and revitalized Christian worship in the uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, then especially into the nineties. And um, Wimber he was talking about the Jesus People movement. And uh, he was heavily involved in evangelism in those days. And he says, you could sneeze and people would come into the church. It was like impossible not to get people saved. Just this radical move of God. And people were attracted to the beauty of Christ. People were attracted to the loveliness of who he is. And one of the things we ended up doing in the church, and we still do it today, is we exchange beauty for rules. We even did it in the way that we brought people in. We said, well, if you say a prayer, then now you're saved. So that's a rule based on salvation. Do you know that that prayer has existed for maybe 100 years? You can go back. I was reading a, um, a guy named Count Zinzendorf. That's like a really fun name to say, Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf, was one, he was responsible for the modern, modern missionary movement. He was alive in the 1700s, and he was considered a very notable and respectable theologian. And he talks about the moment of salvation significantly in his writings because he was concerned about people being saved. His, his whole bent was evangelism. He sent people out all over the whole world. When it comes to how we do missions today, he was pretty much the guy that started it. And Zinzendorf, in no part of his letters does he ever say, get people to say a prayer. He says, get people to encounter the presence of Jesus. It's his beauty that draws us. It's his beauty that causes the heart to turn. And you see that one after another, after another, after another throughout Scripture and throughout history. And we've, we've, we've exchanged relationship for a bunch of rules. I so said, if you do these things, you'll be okay. No, I, I discipline my life because I'm passionate for the one that I love. I don't discipline my life because I need everybody to see that I'm disciplined. I don't discipline my life so that everybody, so I know that I'm saved. I discipline my life because I've got a vision of something beautiful. It's the same with my wife. I discipline my life in order to draw me to my wife because I'm passionate about her. I don't, okay, so if I go and I say, I'm going, I remember one time early on in our relationship when my wife and I were dating, um, I, I would pick her up from work and I would go, I would get her a, a cup of Starbucks coffee because she liked drinking coffee. And so I thought this would be a nice thing to do to her. We're like dating for two weeks. And as I was driving, I realized that I could bring this cup of coffee to her because I loved her or because I wanted to get her to love me. And that was exact same circumstances, but very different heart posture. So I don't discipline my life to gain the favor of God. I discipline my life because I'm attracted to his beauty. It requires a, a fundamental shift in, the, in why. I don't come to church because I, it's a rule that I have to fulfill. I come to church to praise his name because I'm attracted to his beauty. And in each and every one of you is a unique sliver of his beauty, of his beauty that he's granted you. I come to celebrate who he is, not because I have to tick off a little checkbox. 
I don't share a word of knowledge or a prophetic word with a stranger on the street because I have because I feel guilty because I haven't won enough people to Jesus. I talk to them because I love Jesus. There's a radical difference between those two things. One will feel leave you feeling full of guilt and shame. One will draw you and, and you'll see him come come through in circumstance after circumstance after circumstance after circumstance. He really is that beautiful. Think about this, Isaiah 42.3. Isaiah 42.3. This demonstrates the heart of God. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not quench. So that, this, here's, we are our own worst enemies. When I'm a bruised reed, there's been times in my life I've been a bruised reed, Sometimes moment to moment. I beat myself up way more than he does. It says he will be tender towards you. His beauty is found in his tenderness. I love uh, Brennan Manning Manning, um, posed this question uh, in one of his talks about Jesus. When Jesus says to Peter, Peter, who do you say I am? The, The question that Brennan Manning poses is, who is the Jesus of your journey? Who is the Jesus of your journey? Is it the tender-hearted one full of compassion that draws you to him because he's so beautiful and you're so captivated by him? Or is he the one that sets out a bunch of rules and regulations for you to follow so that you can look good in front of him? One of them is true, one of them is not. But here's the problem with truth, is you will live according to what you believe is true, even if it's false. It'll become true to you. So if Jesus is a hard and exacting taskmaster, you Organize yourself around him being a hard and exacting taskmaster, even if he isn't. But we conduct our lives based on the things that we believe. And I think he's challenging us to recognize the beauty of who he is. There's an early church father. um, One of the things I love studying is early church history, uh, especially the desert fathers and the desert mothers, uh, which is a movement in church history from about the 3rd to the 6th century. Men and women that removed themselves from society because they were in the midst of a decadent, um, a decadent society, rampant abortion, rampant lust, rampant greed, power. All this stuff was happening in the midst of this society, in the Roman and Greek society. And they removed themselves there to seek God um, and feeling like noticing that the the everything they were surrounded by would uh, detract from their wholehearted intent to pursue him. And so they left society, organized themselves in communities. These desert fathers and these desert mothers became radically passionate in the face of a decadent society to encounter the face of Christ. And story after story after story in their lives shows them responding to his love in significant extravagant ways. One of the guys, his name was Abba Agathon. I I I use the term Abba because that's how they referred to them. And it meant father or mother, Abba or Amma. It was a term of endearment. And so this Father Agathon, Abba Agathon, he said, if I could just exchange my body with the body of a leper, I would be happy because that's perfect love. My goodness, those kind of statements challenge me. It's easier for me to pray that someone would be healed than to imagine myself in their situation. Sometimes prayer becomes the quick fix that we can just walk away from rather than helping someone walk through the midst of suffering. When we have a theology that removes suffering from the equation, we have no idea how to help people in the midst of it. Well, just believe it'll be better. It'll be better. Name it, claim it. 
Okay, that doesn't work for the person who got into a car accident and lost four of their family members. That's still, that pain is still there. How do we walk people through suffering? If we don't have a theology of suffering, we miss it. We have to recognize the tender-heartedness of Christ and how he comes to us. In one, in one particular story, a, a father named Mios, uh, M-I-O-S, was asked by a soldier. He said, does God accept the repentance, my repentance? You know, you think a soldier has probably done some pretty heinous things, especially in that day and age. Does God, would God accept my repentance? I mean, you're not talking about, like, um, the ability to shoot someone from 500 yards away. You're talking about battle was fought face-to-face, limbs flying. I mean, they're talking about, this, this guy's seen some significant stuff. Would God accept my repentance? And Mios, his response to the soldier is, if you tear your uniform, do you throw it away? And the soldier says, no, I sew it up and I use it again. And so Mio said, if you take pity on your own clothing, how much more will God take pity on you? So we just have this fundamentally awkward view of who God is. Who is the Jesus of your journey? Is he the tender-hearted and compassionate one that longs to speak to you? Or is he the one that you have to struggle and strive to, um, to placate and to please? You already are his pleasure. You don't earn his pleasure. You were created to bring him pleasure. It doesn't say, God, for God so loved the world that when everybody was ready to accept him, he sent his son. Well, he says, he loved the world, so he sent him. The prerequisite was not that you recognized how bad you were. The prerequisite was that he loved you. There's another story in the early church of a young girl. Her name was Taisia, and she had gained an inheritance because her parents passed away. And she spent, uh, she spent a significant amount of her time housing particular um, fathers and mothers that were, that were part of this monastic community, these desert fathers and these desert mothers. And she'd house them and take care of them and be hospitable to them. And eventually, over time, she spends all of her inheritance taking care of them. And so she, fall, she, she becomes poor and she falls in. I mean, you can see the slow degradation in her life, where she spends all of her money on these men and women, and then she has no money, she ends up poor, and she starts to um, find a root of bitterness in her heart towards these people that have now, she feels, have taken advantage of them. And so she falls in with a, a group of people, and eventually she finds herself practicing prostitution, which was a normal, uh, an, a normal employment in that day. And so, I mean, the fathers hear about Taisia, and they hear about how she has practiced She's practicing prostitution now, and, and they are grieved over what they knew to be a godly woman now in this position. And so rather than gossip about her and slander her and write things about her and chastise her publicly and making sure they, they picketed in front, of her, uh, in front of the house that she was practicing prostitution in, one of the fathers goes to her and hires her services. And when he walks into the room, he stands in front of her weeping. And she's absolutely bitter, so bitter. And she, gets, she's, she is paralyzed at the love that's coming from the face of this father. And in the face, I mean, you think about the, the okay, let's, let's, sorry to use Bruce for this as an example, but we'll talk about Bruce. Godly man, respected in his community, walks up and hires the services of a prostitute. That's all over the newspaper. That doesn't, like, it, it ruins someone's reputation to be seen in that place. So the cost for someone to go was great. 
but they didn't consider the the their their own ego need to look good or to be accepted by people as something to motivate them. They looked at the need of the person and went. And so he stands there weeping over her, and she says, My father, what's wrong? And he says, How can I not weep when I see the devil playing all over your face? And she finds it in her heart, and she finds repentance, and she leaves with him. She leaves everything behind and leaves with him. Radically, radically changed. There's another story in, in, the, in the Desert Fathers of um, a, a young woman who was being raised by her uncle, and uh, she was known as a, like a sterling example of the spiritual life. And for her chastity, for her purity, uh, for her beauty. And, and as he's raising her, uh, it happens that another man comes by uh, uh, pretending to have good intentions and he ends up uh, seducing her. And at the time this happens that her uncle is uh, away on a, on a pilgrimage. And he has a dream the night that it happens that she's basically been attacked by a snake and swallowed. And he rushes back to the house and can't find her. And for years, she, she, because of the shame based on her fall, she left. Because of what she did, she felt like she disqualified herself. For years, he, he spent years trying to find her. Years trying to find her. And he went, he went to different cities. He inquired about where she was. And, and it, was a, it was a two or three year period before he finally caught wind of where she was. And when he comes, she's he finds her, she's become a prostitute. She's dedicated herself. She's so full of shame that she dedicated herself to the thing that she was shameful of. And standing, it says, it says when he comes before her, again, he hires her services to stand before her. When he stands before her, the scent of the desert fills the room and she's paralyzed. And she can't say anything. And, and I'm just going to read this exchange that they have. Uh, it says, in tears, the old man said to her, why do you not speak to me, my heart? Have I not come to take you home, my child? On me be your sin, my daughter, and on the day of judgment I will render an account of it for you to the Lord. It is I who will be responsible for this to God. And so to the middle of the night, Abraham consoled his niece with words of this kind and covered her with tears. After a while, she plucked up courage and weeping, she said to him, I could not come to you, I was so much ashamed. How can I pray again to God when I'm defiled with sin that's as filthy as this? The holy man said to her, Upon me be your sin, Maria, and let God lay it to my account. Only listen to me and come. Let us go back where we belong. See, our dearest Ephraim is grieving so much for you, and he's praying all the time for you to the Lord. My dear, do not draw back from the mercy of God. To you your sin seems like mountains, but God has spread his mercy over all that he has made. Remember we read together how an unclean woman came to the Lord and he didn't send her away but cleansed her. And she washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. If sparks could set fire to the ocean, then indeed your sins could defile the purity of God. It is not new to fall, my daughter. What is wrong is to lie down when you have fallen. Remember where you stood before you fell. The devil once mocked you, but now he will know that you can rise more strong than ever before. So no matter what you've done, you are not forgotten. No matter what's going on in your life, you are not forgotten. Story after story after story throughout history shows men and women struck by the beauty of Christ pursuing those that they loved. Why? Because that's the love of Christ. 
That's who he is. Radical, relentless pursuit of your heart. You can't disqualify the pursuit because it's not based upon you. It's him. It's who he is. His beauty is to never let you go. His beauty is to not reckon your past against you. His beauty is not to reckon your present against you. So scripture says he was a man despised by all. How many of you have things in your life you feel like you would be despised by all if they knew about it? So he knows what that's like. He doesn't despise you in the midst of what you find most despicable about yourself. His pursuit is based upon his nature, not upon you. It's who he is. It's his beauty. The Shulamite bride in Song of Solomon chapter 5 is a pertinent example. There's a, there's a particular window in, this, in, uh, in chapter 5 where the bride and the bridegroom... Song of Solomon is, a, is classically uh, used as an analogy between Christ's pursuit of the Christian. The church in general, but the individual Christian. So the bride has gone to bed. And the bridegroom, Christ, comes to the door and knocks and says, Open for me, my lover. Open for me, my beloved. And she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. This is verses 2 to 8. Uh, a sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I don't know if that would work for my wife or not. <laughs> That's... <laughs> It works back then, so. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the bride responds, the Shulamite bride responds to, to this moment of intense passion and longing from the bridegroom, who's shown up in the middle of the night, says, come open to me, I'm, I'm ready for you, I want you. This intense moment of longing, desire, and passion. And the Shulamite bride says this, I'd taken off my garment, how could I put it back on? I bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. It's not until that point that she arises. And she says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. See, that's interesting. My soul, my soul failed me when he spoke. I failed me when, I, when he spoke. His, see, he, the fact that he showed up said, I want you. I don't care what you look like. She said, he's going to see everything. I'm naked. How could, I, how could I possibly let him see all of this stuff? If I go to him, my feet will become dirty. He'll see my sin. He'll see my unloveliness. Her shame negated the moment. But the bridegroom was there knocking, ready, waiting. Her shame negated the moment. She struggled with the fact, would he accept me? Will he love me? Will he reject me when I open the door? All the while not realizing that the very fact that he showed up said, I accept you. He longed for her. So, I mean, Jesus carries these, th these points forward. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Him standing at the door and knocking says that it doesn't matter what you've done. He's there for you. You can't disqualify his pursuit. 
That's a statement about the essence of who he is. Jesus said in perfectly defining the heart of God, my heart is meek and lowly. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will be a resting place for your soul. That's a, that's a statement, that a broad sweeping statement about the heart of God for you. Not come to me when you're perfect, come to me when you're heavy and, and weary. I will be your resting place. The invitation is broad. The invitation's never been rescinded. The invitation's existed since the garden. He created a people to be passionate about. And you're one of those people. The only thing that stops it is our lack of belief that he's good. That he's a shepherd. That he'll take care of us. That's the only thing that stops it. He's never stopped his pursuit. It's been ongoing throughout all of history. Again, I've just read a couple of examples of people struck by that pursuit and then doing the pursuit themselves. Paul said that we were compelled or constricted by the love of Christ. His whole life was a model of the love of Christ. See, victorious Christianity isn't overcoming sin. That's not what it is. Victorious Christianity is laying your life down for another. That's being victorious. It's not in being able to stand up, stand strong, and say, i got big muscles. Victorious Christianity is recognizing how weak you are. How much you need Him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Not poor in material wealth. That's not what that says. Blessed are those who recognize everything they lack in God and what they need. I need His Spirit desperately day by day. And that will be the inheritance of the kingdom of God. The first thing I need is to recognize just how much I need him, and then I can recognize just how much he's passionately pursuing me. The culmination of, of the, the interplay between the Shulamite bride and the beloved is found in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. It says this, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? And it says this, uh, as a seal set upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. That's the culmination of the spiritual journey. Her seeking and, and finding herself destitute and then longing and pursuing so when, when, she leave, when the Shulamite bride leaves the house, she enters into the journey of the heart, discovering the things within that we believe about ourselves and about who God is that disqualify us, that we feel disqualify us from service and relationship. That's the journey of the heart. It's coming in contact with your brokenness and realizing God loves you in spite of it. When Jesus is before Pilate, right before um, the Jews take him, and there's this, this interplay with him and a man named Barabbas. And you guys know the story about Jesus and the cross? Yeah? Okay, good, good job, Bruce. <laughs> they know about Jesus and the cross. <laughs> Barabbas, uh, it says, was guilty of... Um, where do I have it written here? He was guilty of rebellion, inciting a riot, murder. He was a thief, and he was a notorious prisoner. 
And the Jews have Jesus and Barabbas sitting there. And Pilate says, we have a custom. The custom is, well, I'll release one prisoner to you. This man, I've investigated his claims. He doesn't, it, nothing he's saying is what he's guilty of, what you're claiming he's guilty of. And we have Barabbas over here who's guilty of um, in, fomenting insurrection is what it says. So rebellion, he's guilty of lying. He's guilty of stealing. He's guilty of killing and he's guilty of destroying. And they say, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. You guys know the story. Give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. When Jesus was convicted of rebellion by the Jews and Pilate, he was innocent. Barabbas, however, was guilty of that very thing. He was set free. In essence, we had a shadow of forgiveness, a picture of forgiveness. Okay, so that's interesting in and of itself. Barabbas is the Hebrew name Bar-Abba, and it means son of the father. Son of the father. I think in Scripture there was another person who was the son of the father that was guilty of subjecting creation to death, murder, and destruction. One, every single one of us, and two, Adam. When Jesus took the place of Barabbas, he was declaring that every son of the father I'm taking the place of. I'm exchanging my life for yours. Every place, everything you're guilty of. Every, and Jesus even, I mean, he was, he was pretty clear, like, okay, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, anger is murder. That's the Sermon on the Mount, essentially. One of the points of it. It's like, the issue is the heart. I'm taking everything within you that is guilty of these things and exchanging my life for yours. The early church fathers looked at that particular interaction and said, Jesus, in a moment, retold the story of mankind. Just like in your life, when he comes to you, he begins to retell your story. He begins to redefine your life, your struggles, who you are. And all the things that you struggled with, some of the people I know that are most effective for God go back to the place where they were most destitute of God. People that were addicted to drugs and, and gambling and things like that go back into that same place and find radical, radical moments of influence. God retells your story. He recapitulates is what is what the technical theological term. He recapitulates who you are. He tells your story all over again. And he uses everything that you've been through and creates within you a beautiful thing. Again, you can't do anything that negates him. Your, your, your ability to fail doesn't supersede his ability to forgive. It's impossible. There's a, there's a, a particular thread in terms of um, early church theology where it says that uh, everything... There's lots of statements in the New Testament about Jesus having received something, right? That it says that he was given the oil of gladness. Hebrews 1 talks about that. And he was more joyful than um, all of his companions. Uh, it says that he was given, Philippians 2 talks about him being given the name above every name. Um, we know uh, that he was given keys to death, hell, and the grave. Uh, that's Revelation 1 and Revelation 2 talks about that. So there's all these things in Scripture that, it's talk, that it talks about. He, I mean, he received the Spirit very practically at his baptism. So he, there are multiple things he received in his earthly life. Um, 
And so the early church fathers who were dealing with some heretical uh, arguments and things like that, the, the, anti, the antithesis to, to Trinitarian theology would make the argument that said if Jesus received something, then he can't be fully God. How could he have received something if he's fully God? And so they said if he was given the oil of gladness, that means that he didn't have the oil of gladness. So how could he be given the oil of gladness? Well, that means he's not fully God. It means he's created by God and God gave him something. That was the heretical Trinitarian, that was the argument against um, Trinitarian theology. Is you've got these statements that say Jesus was given something. Well, how can that be if he's fully God? So this is the argument that was ongoing in the early churches. They try and discover the nature of who Jesus was uh, as fully God and fully man. And Augustine, one of the great Trinitarian theologians, said the only reason that we misunderstand these things is because people don't do a proper search through Scripture. Scripture makes itself clear. And he goes, and his reference is Philippians 2. So he says in Philippians 2, it says that uh, Jesus considered himself of no reputation and emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, unto the point of death on the cross. I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but generally so. He took on the form of, ser- of a servant, emptied himself, and took on the form of a servant. And so Augustine and some of the other church authors said this incredible thing regarding statements that said Jesus received something. He said he only received things in the form of a man because he emptied himself of his divinity. And so when he came in the form of a servant, he was given the oil of gladness. When he came in the form of a servant, he was given keys to the death, hell, death, hell, and the grave. When he came in the form of a servant, he was given the kingdom. When he came in the form of a servant, he was given the spirit. So then they go, why would, why would it be necessary for him to be given something in the form of a man? Because if he's fully God, then he already had it as God. So why would he need to receive it then? And the simple answer is this. Everything Scripture says he received as a man, he received on behalf of humanity, that by faith in him, humanity would receive it. So, so here, another, we'll just go take it even further. The virgin birth. Whose seed did he receive? He accuses the, the, um, the Pharisees of being of their father the devil, meaning, meaning you received seed from your father and you do the things your father does. So because he was born of a virgin, he, it says that he received incorruptible seed. That's 1 John talks about him receiving incorruptible seed. So that means he, as a man, received the seed of God to be born into God so that on behalf of him, you would receive the same seed born of an incorruptible nature. By faith in him, you receive what he received because he received it on behalf of humanity. So Second Peter 1, 4 says it like this. You've been made a partaker of the divine nature. How? By faith in him, because he partook of the divine nature as a man. One of the early church theological statements regarding that fact was, God became man so that man might become like God, so that you would be transformed. The entire scope of creation was radically transforming your life so you'd look like him. Like You're talking about the entire narrative of history and creation story all centers on the fact that God desired a people that would look like him. And we get stuck over the fact that I I sinned yesterday, so I don't know if he still loves me. When the sweeping history is, he's radically passionate about his people. 
I'm not saying that he doesn't deal with sin. That's a conversation for another time. But he comes after you in the midst of anything you've ever done. Relentless pursuit. Because he's tender. It's his beauty to pursue you in the face of anything else. The Jesus of my journey is that regardless of what I did, I never disqualified myself from his presence. And when I capture a glimpse of that beauty, all the other stuff that I was doing, I don't want to do anymore. Not because he said don't do it, but because I know it's not him. And when I see that beauty, like I said, the discipline of my life is to pursue that beauty. The natural result of catching a glimpse of the beauty of Christ is that sin will die. Because I don't want to do anything that invalidates his presence. I want to look like him. I want to see him. I want when people see me to see him. Because he's beauty. And because he never gave up on me. And he kept coming, and he kept coming, and he kept coming. In the lowest of the lows. I remember one time I'd gone through a very difficult season and the Lord came to me on the tail end of this, the circumstances of it, as I was going through, I was very depressed and he said, Josh, you lost your hope. Let's deal with that. And he began restoring hope to me. You know how he restored hope to me? By speaking to me. By showing me who he is in scripture. By unpacking his word to me. So every day I'd create space within my life to see more of who he is. So he, the, the voice, Psalms, Psalm says, I'll wrap up at some point. Psalm says this, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Uh, Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Uh, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. It strips the forest bare. And is in his temple, everyone says glory. See, when his voice comes and he speaks, everything changes. Everything changes when he speaks. He brings peace. His voice causes waters to still. It's powerful. We hear God and it strengthens our inner life. It's majestic. It reveals how beautiful he is. When it says it breaks the cedars, that means it breaks up the stuff that's, that's holding you back. The hard exterior of your life. Divides the flames of fire. He shows you what's of him and what's not. You know what it means? Shakes the wilderness means to tease into dancing. If you look at the Hebrew phrase, when he speaks, there's, how many of you, when he's spoken to you, there's a buoyancy that hits you all of a sudden? And you almost feel like expressing and exclaiming yourself. Because his voice has power. And I'm telling you, you've got person after person after person throughout history who said, when God speaks, this happens. Macarius the Great in the 4th century said, uh, uh, A.D., said, when God speaks, it fills the inner man with joy and pleasure. It creates a deep, bride, uh, deep, deep communion like a bride and bridegroom. We got, we're caught up into heavenly encounters when he comes. We're moved with grief and sadness for all mankind. We're inflamed with, inflamed with joy and love for others. He said, God's voice works a deep humility that makes you feel lower than all. He leads you into spiritual battle like a strong warrior. His voice produces silence, calmness, peace, spiritual pleasure. It imparts 
imparts spiritual knowledge that's beyond words. Gregory of Sinai in the 6th and 7th century said, when the Holy Spirit comes and speaks in the inner man, it brings warmth and joy to the intellect. It sets the heart alight with an ineffable love for God and man. It brings humility and contrition, and it flows richly into prayer. It rises like fire, uh, joy from the heart. It, there's an awe that arises in the heart. There's joy mingled with awe. There's tremulous, ming, tremul, trembling mingled with joy. It manifests itself as tears. The soul is joyous when God visits and brings mercy, but at the same time is in awe and trepidation at his presence. He said, there's an unutterable sense of contrition and an indescribable pain in the heart when God's presence comes. And that's how the Shulamite bride can say, I've been wounded with love. I have been wounded with love. There's an unconquerable love, an unconquerable peace, a spiritual force and an impulsion living in the heart. Teresa of Avila, 16th century uh, Spanish mystic, Christian mystic, says that the voice of God brings power and authority. The voice of God brings peace. The voice of God leaves a lasting impression that doesn't fade from your memory. The voice of God surprises you. The voice of God speaks statements that are true, brings statements that are clear. And the voice of God works humility. When God speaks, things change. And there is a witness in every age of history of God speaking coming to his people. A good friend of mine says, here's an easy way to tell. Is this God's voice or the enemy's voice? Whose does it sound like? Does it sound like God or does it sound like the enemy? Which one? Just ask the question. Does God say, I hate you, you're, you screw up? Or does he say, I love you, I know this is what you're capable of? Whose voice does it sound like? Can I have the worship team come up? Just want to create a space to respond to hearing his voice. See, in, in the Old Testament, there was the, the statement hap is, is made over and over again that the Spirit comes upon the prophetic individual and speaks to them. And Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 43, has this fascinating uh, encounter with the Spirit of God. And he says when, when he's in Ezekiel 40 to 48, he's being shown a vision of the future temple. And the spirit comes and it says, uh, comes into the temple and occupies the temple. He's seeing this whole vision. And um, you guys can start whenever. It'd be, it's good. Um, when, the, when the spirit comes, it says that the voice spoke to me from within the temple. And it said, this will be the place I occupy. The voice he heard from the Spirit of God. This will be the place I occupy. This will be the place I rule and reign from. So we... What's the point? Is eventually, Ezekiel's prophecy never came to pass in the physical. The temple was built and the Spirit never came. If you know the history of, of the, the Old Testament tabernacle, when they rebuilt the temple, the Spirit never came back. It was a very difficult thing for the Jews to see. The next time the Spirit came back was at the baptism of Jesus and hovered over a temple. And then at Pentecost, the people gathered as a temple and the fire comes. 
It's the Spirit coming over His people. See, Ezekiel's prophecy came to pass in the New Testament Christian. That the Spirit of God would come and occupy a place and then speak from within that place. We, 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 we look for these extravagant displays, visions, prophecies, prophetic utterances, all kinds of stuff we look, for, we look to God. And God longs to have a conversation with you in your heart. And He's been looking for that place. That place of conversing in your heart. So it's not about having a great prophetic word from someone. It's about hearing His voice in your heart. That's the thing that radically shifts. So when I'm talking about the voice of God, I'm not saying that you have someone up here pointing you out and giving you a prophetic word. That's one way. But you can hear His voice every day. His desire is to speak to you every day. I said You can even infer from Jesus' prayer that that's the daily bread of give us, our, give us today our daily bread is the voice of God. He longs to speak deep in the heart of each and every one of you. It's who He is. The whole point of disciplining your life around the ideas of prayer and things like that is to create space where there's not chaos going on on the inside, but His voice going on on the inside. And, and what I want to do this morning, just as we go into this time of worship and response, is Scripture, said, scripture told, um, Jesus told His disciples... Uh, when he was received, when they were received, to leave their peace with the person that was received, and so he demonstrated that peace is an impartable thing. So, what I want to do for you today, I know one of the things that makes hearing God's voice difficult is a lack of peace, because you got chaos going on in the mind, circumstances, all those types of things. So what I want to offer to you this morning is any of you that want to see that beauty, that want to hear his voice saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You're my beloved child. Anyone that wants to hear that voice, I want you to come forward and I want to pray for you. I want to pray that God would clean the air around your heart, around your mind, so that you could hear him. You don't need to hear him from me. You need to hear him from you because he wants to speak to your heart. So if you want if you want prayer in that regard to hear his voice in a clear and clean way, I want to do that. So I'm just going to ask the worship team. They're just going to go into a time of worship, and I'm going to be up here. And so why don't we just all stand? And if you want to hear if you want to hear him cleanly, just come. Just come down. There's a there's a something about making a statement that says I'm going to come forward and declare to God in this moment that I want to hear him. There's something about making the statement. The invitation is open. Anybody come. I'm, I'm just, let's just go into that place of praise and adoration before him. <laughs>